Okay, this morning I want to I want to keep talking about Luke 15, but I particularly want to I want to focus how Jesus frames repentance in Luke 15, and how that reaches a crescendo with the return of the younger son. And um, what I'm trying to do as we continue to explore these stories of Jesus is build a picture of what I believe Jesus is trying to say and the things he's trying to communicate. And the, the key thing underneath it all really is this, that, that the journey of the Christian faith is really a journey of accepting that you're accepted. And many ancient writers would say that Luke 15 was the gospel within a gospel. And that actually if you want to know about the gospel, it's all there in Luke 15. The truth is you're accepted right now, thank you, just as you are. You don't have to do anything to be accepted. You can't do anything to lose it. Um, but of course, most of us are really good at denying our acceptance by Father and coming up with all the reasons why it can't be possible. But these three parables that Jesus tells in Luke 15 are all about who's accepted, and they also tell a story about what acceptance looks like, how it happens. And um, if you've been listening to me at any point in the last few months, you'll know I've been impacted by Henry Newman's book, who writes that home is a place beyond earning, deserving, and rewarding, a place of surrender and complete trust to make my home where God has made his is the greatest spiritual challenge. And there is something deep within me that as soon as I read that when that's right, that's what home really is. A place beyond earning, deserving, and rewarding. And um, I talked about last week about the younger son coming home and that he came to his senses and we said that for him to return home meant these six things. It meant seeing the reality of the current situation, pigsty and all. It meant realizing life is better at home and therefore worse away from home. It meant recognize the goodness of the father. It meant understanding there's no need for groveling apologies or long admissions of guilt. It meant allowing the father to delight over us because we are his kids and we are home. And it meant accepting his robe ring and sandals and all that that means. After I left last Sunday, I um, dropped Sam off at one of his friend's house. And his phone was dying, so um, he said, Dad, can I borrow this charger? And it's like this little one that just lives in the car. I said, yeah, okay, son, but that's my little one that lives in the car, so bring it back. So anyway, I saw him about 9 o'clock that night, and uh, I said, do you have a nice time? Yeah, yeah. Did you bring my charger book? Well, I know where it is, Dad. It's at Elsie's house. And I went, well, I told you. And then he went, well, hang on a minute. There's not many been a need for groveling apologies or long admissions of guilt. You just meant to run and give me a hug. I said, you're right, son, come here. Now go get my blinking charger. <laughs> it takes a long time to get these things out of us, doesn't it? It, it takes a while, but I loved how it sat in him. I think. <laughs> no, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Because it made me go, ah, oh, you idiot, Adam. That wasn't a very good father, was it? It's a flipping little charger that means nothing. Anyway, at the end of the day, these six thoughts are just different expressions of one underlying thought, which of course we've mentioned a few times. This is it. It's a journey of accepting that we are accepted by Father. And this morning, I want to help us on that journey by continuing to look at Luke 15 and the parables that occur before that, because Luke 15 is really a collection of three parables that all 
there's a there's a building in them. There's a sense that Jesus is saying different things in different ones, but he's really building on this sense of who's accepted. And we know that because uh, in verse 1 to 2, he says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And interestingly, verse 3 actually says, and he told them this parable, singular. We break it down into three, but according to Jesus' words, it's all one. So you've got these two groups of people, the supposedly righteous people who are complaining because Jesus is claiming to be from God, and yet he's welcoming the supposedly unrighteous people. And of course, the custom of the day was that to be acceptable, you had to make sure you did all sorts of things in particular ways. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did all those right things according to what they understood God had previously said. And everyone knew that they, those people were the acceptable ones. And anyone who didn't do these right things was considered unrighteous and therefore unacceptable. But here is Jesus, who claims to be from God, and yet he's welcoming the sinners and the tax collectors and even eating with them. And the words Luke uses here tells us that Jesus wasn't just welcoming them, he was accepting them as friends. And not only is he accepting them as friends, but he's sitting down and eating with them. And to eat with somebody in the ancient Near East was a deep, signifying a deep value of those people. It wasn't like us, I will have a meal. If you had a meal, you were accepting them in every single way at some deep value. You said you valued them, you cared for them, and you accepted them. To welcome them, to friend them, was one thing to eat with them was something else. So all these three stories that Jesus tells are in response to the mutterings of righteous people about who is acceptable and who isn't. And what we see is Jesus is redefining what it means to be lost and what it means to be found. But more than that, he's redefining how we get found and what it means to be found. So first of all, he tells this story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Here's my question. What's repentance got to do with the story? Because Jesus, at the end of the story, talks about repentance. But the story is about a sheep that gets lost and gets found. In what way did the sheep repent? What did the sheep do to repent? So the next story. Well, suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's a story about a lady who loses a coin. And it's more than likely um, that she would have had these coins kind of tied up in a, a rag almost around her waist. So she's doing the housework and one falls out. And she has to light a lamp because there's just tiny slits in the windows because rooms are designed to keep the heat out, not let the light in. So she has to light a lamp and search for it. But what's it got to do with repentance? In what way does the coin repent? And what does repentance look like for the coin? One would imagine not. What if Jesus in these stories is defining or actually reminding us of what repentance really is? The sheep 
is discovered to be missing. It's wandered off. And the shepherd hunts high and low until he finds it. The shepherd pays the price to search for, find, and carry the sheep back to the flock. The sheep is then found. And then there is a party which is linked to repentance. The coin is lost in the house somewhere, and the owner does everything she can to find the coin. She lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and searches carefully. The woman pays the price to hunt for and find the coin, and then calls a party and pays for that when she has found it, because the coin is then found. Perhaps Jesus is redefining repentance as acceptance of being found. In truth, he's not really redefining anything. He's just reminding people of what's really true because that was repentance back in the garden. Because right back at the very beginning, when humanity first gets it wrong, we read that just like the shepherd and the woman, God comes searching. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And just like every human being since, Adam launches into an explanation of why he got it wrong and what had happened. But what was really necessary was perhaps not the explanation, but a simple coming out from behind the trees. In other words, what was necessary, right from the very beginning, was simply allowing yourself to be found. All he had to do was go, I'm here. And then he'd be found. Let me show you how this works in the one with the prodigal. We know the prodigal asks for his share of the inheritance, and he wastes it all, finds himself having nothing and feeding pigs to try and get by. And there's obviously a sense of shame that stops him going home, but, but this is more than the shame of losing money, because first century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among the Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, so-and-so is cut off from his people. The ceremony was called the kazaza, literally it means the cutting off. And after it was performed, the community would have nothing to do with the wayward person. So this prodigal, and we know he must be with the Gentiles because he's feeding pigs, not only is facing the shame and humiliation of his own family, but the whole community are cutting him off. Nobody is going to have anything to do with this lad, no matter what, according to the tradition of the day. So after losing everything and being reduced to wanting the pigs and leftovers, of course, he says this when he came to his senses. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, for centuries, this little speech has been understood as repentance. But is it? Read it. There's no remorse. He wants to go home to eat. The reason he's going home is he wants to find a way so he can eat because he's hungry. There's just a desire to eat and to survive, and his reason for returning home is to serve his own interests, to get some food. He knows he's going to face this kazaza ceremony when he returns, and so in his mind, perhaps, restoration is only possible when he can pay the money back he's lost. Hence his plan to be a hired worker. A hired worker is somebody who wouldn't be in father's house, because he doesn't think he can be in father's house. Plus there's something going on with his older brother, probably doesn't want to be with him either. So he's going to be a hired worker, which means he can earn some money, which means eventually he can pay it back, and then he can be restored. This lad is still trying to earn his way back. 
Even his opening remark is calculated. Remember that Jesus was speaking to those who knew the Torah and the law, Pharisees and all that. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, which is pretty much almost word for word a paraphrase from the mouth of Pharaoh after nine plagues. And Pharaoh, after the nine plagues back in Exodus, he's basically going, I'm going to say whatever I want to say to stop this because I'm fed up now. There was no sincerity in Pharaoh's desire. He wasn't actually repenting. He's just going, I've had enough now. I'll say whatever I need to say. So to his original hearers, they're understanding, okay, this is just like back then when he's not really interested in saying sorry. He's just interested in getting back what he wants. The prodigal isn't after grace. He's still looking to earn his way out of his problem. And pay back what he's lost. He has no thought that sonship can still be his. At least not until he's repaid the debt. And he anticipates a servant-master relationship with father. He's not even looking to be reconciled. He wants to eat. To be provided for. To live as a hired worker. Even his supposed rehearsal of his repentance speech. He isn't really repenting at all. Because of course in truth he can't repent yet. Because he hasn't yet understood the issue. Because the real issue. is not a broken law. The money. The real issue is the broken relationship, which he has not worked out yet. He still thinks the issue is the money he's lost and the consequences of that on the future, but that's not the issue. The issue is father's broken heart. The problem is not the broken law, but the broken relationship. That is why what we call sin is black and white to father, because it's never about the law, it's about the heart. And your heart's broken or it's not. It's not a little bit broken. It's either broken or it's not. And so we still seem to think that there are, there are some things that, oh, well, that's not really a big deal. Ooh, that's a really, really big deal. <sighs> the deal is that Father's heart's been broken. And it doesn't matter whether it's a big deal or a little big deal, his heart's broken. Now, of course, on a human level, the hurt we bring into the world and onto ourselves has a scale and there's a very different impact depending on different things. If I murder somebody or I don't quite tell the truth, that has a different impact on this earth. But it has no different impact up there. Well, not up there, in here. Because I've broken his heart. I've broken his heart. But thankfully, he's already done everything necessary to put it back together again. Anything that's not of him and from his heart breaks his heart. And that heart is either broken or it's not. God's issue when we get it wrong and make unhealthy choices, it's about the broken relationship between us and him much more than it is about what's gone on. And listen, God is not worried about sin because he already dealt with it. He's not concerned about sin because he already dealt with it. We get all hit up about sin. He's not concerned about it because he's already dealt with it. That's why in Hebrews it talks about the Old Testament, it talks about making you sin conscious. The whole point of the law was to make you aware. But now that's gone. It's all gone. One of the things that is deeply profound about this series of parables is that Jesus is trying to reorientate our hearts to see what it really means to repent. First, we have to understand what the issue is, which is not the broken law, the things you got wrong. The issue is not living Father's way, you've broken Father's heart. And one of the things Jesus is trying to get across culminating with the lost son is his heart for relationship. So often we get lost in trying to repent because we're yet to fully understand the issue is not with the broken law but with the broken relationship. And one of the many sticking points many of us have is the shame and guilt we feel when we get it wrong. We simply don't feel like we can or even should be able to walk straight back into dad's arms. And we've got 
you know, Bonhoeffer's phrase of cheap grace rings in our ears. There must be some deep cost to it. Yes, there was a deep cost to it, paid for by Jesus. Grace is impossible to be cheap because Jesus already paid for it. But of course, some of our previous upbringing kind of gets stuck in some of these places. But this, this, this kind of dwelling in the shame and guilt makes a mockery of our repenting because if at any time we're going to hiding from God, as Adam did back in the beginning, then by definition, we cannot be found. All our repenting based in hiding is not really repenting at all. So all our repenting, when we go, well, I just have to sit here for a little bit and I can't worship and I can't pray and God won't listen to me, that's not repenting, that's hiding. All you've got to do is stop hiding and you've automatically repented. Does it make sense? And of course, we know, well, Adam, there's that Greek word metanoia, that means repent. Yeah, it's a Greek word. And where did the Greeks live? In their heads, in their minds. Jesus said it in Aramaic, he didn't say it in Greek. I've not looked at what the Aramaic is, but you can actually read, well, you can't, I can't, but you can read translations of Aramaic versions of the New Testament. And you read some of this stuff, you realize there's these little hints and, and, and that give all this sense of his grace and his goodness. But we've got it in the Greek, and we've got all the Greek thinking. Then we've gone, oh, yes, it's a change of mind. Repentance is not a change of mind. It's just not. It's living in the grace that's already yours and been found. That's what repentance is all about. And of course, of course, if you keep making unhealthy choices, well, you'll reap those rewards. That is your choice. And of course, don't do it because it's better for you and everybody around you. But actually, that's, that's you making life better for you. That's nothing to do with your relationship with Jesus. We think our repentance is about making it better for God. No, all your changing of mind, all your not doing this, not doing that, doing this, doing that, that's about you and you having a good life. No, it is. Don't make any difference to Jesus. He's already done it all. None of your doing affects him. It affects you and those around you. But it doesn't affect him. To truly repent would mean to allow yourself to be found like the sheep and the coin. And as we'll see in a minute, the prodigal son. But what to do with all that guilt and shame that hounds us so often? Well, you remember I told you about the Kazaza ceremony. The one where the son who lost everything with the Gentiles is cut off from the whole community. Can you imagine the dread running through the prodigal's head as he nears the village? The shame, the guilt, the condemnation that he's no doubt just waiting to be poured out on him. So he's walking towards that village, waiting for the first person who sees him to go, Ah, this boy's back. Somebody go get the pot. Come on, let's tell him what we think about him. But as he approaches the village, he sees an old man literally racing towards him. That's what the word means, racing, not running, racing toward him. And then he realizes that this old man is dad, which is painfully shameful for dad on a few fronts. Because for him to race, well, you just don't do that as an old man. A man of his age and standing would always walk in a slow, dignified fashion. And to run would mean the need to take the front edge of his robes and lift them up, revealing his legs, which was deeply shameful for a man of any age. Why is the father willing to race to the son in such a humiliating and shameful way? Because father knows all about Kazaza. He knows that if he can welcome the son home first, then no one in the village will dare enact the ceremony. They will follow his lead. So to spare the son the shame and humiliation of it all, the father takes it upon himself. 
He becomes the one whom everyone is watching wide-eyed as he breaks every cultural convention to get to his son first because he is more than willing to take on all the shame and the humiliation so the son doesn't have to endure any of it. At what point did the son repent? Ah, he turned around and walked home. Hmm, yeah. But at that point, he turned around and walked home because he was hungry and wanted someone to eat. I think he repented when he ran into the arms of his father and allowed himself to be found. And we know he repented because he doesn't finish his prepared speech. Now, some would say, ah, yeah, but that's because dad cut him off. Hmm, maybe, maybe his dad did cut him off. But maybe in the arms of his father, he realized that there was no need to earn it. So he doesn't need to say, make me a hired worker. Because he's realized in the arms of the Father that there is no need to pay it back. Because right there, everything is well. How does he repent? He repents by giving up any thought that he can work his way out of it or pay back what he lost. And by choosing to accept that he's accepted by the Father and welcomed home. So perhaps repentance is about allowing yourself to be found. Perhaps it's about stopping hiding and just allowing him to find you where you are. And when you wander off the best path like Adam and Eve did in the very beginning and Father comes looking for you in the cool of the day asking where are you like he does, then the best response is not to give an excuse or to explain why you are where you are, or to tell him all the reasons why he can't possibly find you, if you really want to repent, then simply come out of your hiding place and allow yourself to be found. And then perhaps you'll embrace repentance as Jesus teaches it in Luke chapter 15. It's been at least three years now, if not more, since we started talking about Jesus in the boat and the need to rest and lay our head on the pillow and sit with him. I think these last three years in my walk with Jesus have been the most exciting and the most fulfilling and the most beautiful. And as I've journeyed with this stuff, I have come into a completely different place with it. And it is the most freeing, releasing, beautiful, restful place. And I want to encourage you to keep going. it's just wonderful to not try anymore catches me every now and again but most of the time I'm there but for now this is what I want to finish with okay I suppose to put a practical front on it being found 
and he's just going, here I am, God. This is going on. I'm aware of it, and I'm here. Maybe we should just take a moment before we finish just to allow anybody who feels the need to do that to do it. Father, I thank you that just as you did all back at the beginning, you still walk the garden in the cool of the day asking where are you? And I want to thank you that there is nothing in that voice other than love and compassion. There is no trace of anger or frustration. There is no trace of upset. There is just a deep desire to be back in communion together. Now, Father, I pray a lot, especially for anybody you who felt like they just became aware of something that was in the way or something that was blocking or some sense that they were separated from you. Father, I pray that right now, as they just allow themselves to be found, that they would know that wrapped in your arms, just like that prodigal did, it is all dissolved. It's all dissolved. Thank you, Lord. And then, of course, you have to accept that it's dissolved. And stop bringing it up. Amen.